Hello, and welcome to the Strategica podcast from the Hoover Institution, analyzing the intersection of military history and contemporary national security concerns. You can find us online at hoover.org forward slash strategica. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, and today we'll be examining the topic of the most recent issue of Strategica, the potential of terrorists to conduct future large-scale attacks. And we are joined today by the author of the Historical backgrounder in this issue, Peter Mansour, the General Raymond E. Mason Jr. Chair of Military History at Ohio State University, retired Army Colonel, and a member of Hoover's Military History Working Group. Peter, thanks for being with us. It's my pleasure. Thanks for having me on. So in the piece that you've written for this issue, you focus specifically on the question, is another 9-11 possible. And and why don't we actually start back there? Because you and I are speaking a few weeks before the 15th anniversary of the 9-11 attacks. And as we think back to that day, it's sort of a cliche to note how inconceivable all of that carnage would have seemed on September 10th. But but it's a cliche largely because it's true. Americans did have a sense of insulation from that kind of danger. Now, we had, as you lay out in your piece, a, a series of terrorist attacks in the decade preceding it, but certainly nothing on that scale and nothing that theatrical. Why, in your judgment, did we not see the escalation coming? You know, I'm not a big fan of government reports, but in this case, <laughs> the, best, the best report on 9-11 is the 9-11 Commission report. And uh, this bipartisan group of, uh, of politicians and uh, analysts nailed it. It was a failure of imagination. <clears throat> we had all the pieces of intelligence uh, and the information we needed, uh, but no one could conceive that terrorists would fly airplanes into buildings and, and, um, and do so much damage. It was, um, it was a failure to simply think, uh, put yourself in the terrorist's Choose and think about ways that they could do massive damage to the United States. You know, the, the clues were there. Uh, they had tried to topple the World Trade Center in 1993 using a truck bomb. The bomb wasn't big enough. And so they were simply going to try to find a bigger bomb. And, uh, and, and in fact, Ramzi Youssef said it. He said, you know, if I had enough time, I would have gotten the, the calculations right, and I would have toppled those towers. And uh, and so eventually they did get the calculations right. And they 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 came up with a good plan. Well, to that point, not to be macabre about this, but can you give our listeners a sense of the the degree of difficulty, I guess, of the nine eleven attacks? What I mean by that is, given the security weaknesses that we know that we had at the time, could any sort of sufficiently committed group of terrorists have pulled something like this off with enough time and planning? Or was this a really sort of uniquely sophisticated logistical feat? It was a sophisticated logistical feat. You had to have 15 or 16 terrorists, all with uh, real or fake passports, all in the United States in safe houses at the same time, four of them at least with with uh, major jumbo jet pilot training and enough money to, to pull this off of half a million dollars. Not all terrorist groups have that kind of planning ability and that kind of funding. Uh, Al-Qaeda obviously is one that does. 
And then you had to be lucky. And chance is part of military affairs from the beginning of history. Uh, but this group had to be lucky. They, ha- they had to uh, escape notice. They had to um, have everything go right. You know, no cancellations, no delays to the planes. Um, they had to uh, make sure, you know, or it was just chance perhaps that uh, some sort of FBI agent didn't piece together their plot. Um, so everything had to go right for them. And unfortunately, it did. Now, let's talk about the aftermath, what's happened since. In the 15 years since 9-11, I mean, we've seen some pretty grisly terrorist attacks, both at home and abroad, but nothing on that sort of huge epic scale of what happened on September 11th. One of the things that's interesting about this is that in the American context anyway, it does seem to defy a ready partisan explanation because the the critics of both George W. Bush – and Barack Obama, the two presidents that we've had in that time, claimed in each case that the foreign policy predilections of that president would would make the country less safe. In Bush's case, the criticism was that he was too promiscuous with the use of force and that it was going to invite blowback. In Obama's case, the knock has been that he's too passive. Our enemies will seize on the weakness. So basically opposite cases, but neither one of those presidents presides, as of our conversation today anyway, over another 9-11 scale attack. Peter, what, what happened there? How does this happen that for a decade and a half under two presidents with very different approaches to foreign policy, we still avoid something like this? Well, quite frankly, I don't think it was uh, foreign policy that prevented another 9-11 in either case. Mm. And I think the, you know, your, what you just said bears that out. It's the defensive measures that we've taken. Um, we've armored cockpit doors. Uh, we've, we have much more stringent security at airports uh, and on mass transit. We've focused our intelligence effort on on locating terrorists and on ferreting out cells in the United States. And um, you know the operatives in the in both intelligence world and in the law enforcement world are putting their heads together and coming. You know they're thinking about how can the terrorists do damage to us again. The real you know, the real uh, uh, triumph of Al-Qaeda on 9-11 is that it took an ordinary piece of technology and turned it into a weapon, a weapon of mass destruction. And it's very difficult to think about what other piece of technology might be used in that manner. Um, in my article, I, I mentioned, you know, perhaps nerve gas, which has been used before in the Tokyo subway, um, in the Tokyo subways uh, in the 1990s. Uh, that could be one way. Um, a nuclear device would obviously be uh, another way, but it's very, very difficult for these terrorist groups to get their, their hands on a nuclear device unless uh, those devices are given to those groups by a state actor. So in many ways, um, the foreign policy has been irrelevant to whether another 9-11 style attack has, has occurred in the United States. It's a different question as to what as to whether foreign policies have encouraged or discouraged attacks at all, any kind of attacks, because we have had attacks in Europe and the United States, um, but they just haven't been on the scale of 9-11. Right, and there is this school of thought out there, Peter, that says that these terrorist attacks that you're getting now – they're sort of limited to the realm of soft targets, so you can, you can shoot up a nightclub in Orlando. You can drive a truck across the boardwalk in Nice. You, you fire on your coworkers <laughs> at a Christmas party in San Bernardino. And there's a certain school of thought here that says that's all grisly. It's all horrifying. It's all difficult to stop in an open society. 
but they're also not going after core infrastructure or big national landmarks. They're not, of course, inflicting casualties at the same level as a as a 9-11. Should we expect that to continue as sort of the dominant mode of terrorism, or is that maybe numbing us a little to the possibility of a bigger attack in the future? I'm not sure that the FBI is numb to the possibility of bigger attacks, but I think these are the kind of attacks that ISIS and other groups are capable of launching at the moment. So those are the attacks that that they are launching. Uh, but you know what they're looking at, uh, or what they're trying to do, is erode our will to fight. And these sort of pinprick attacks, but have a, an outsized psychological impact. In some cases, it it energizes more action uh, to fight ISIS and other groups. But in other cases, it, it, uh, you know, it makes people pause and say, well, why are we in the Middle East? If we get out, maybe they'll leave us alone. I think that's a, a very insidious thought, and it will not lead to the uh, peace in any, any kind of uh, reasonable uh, meaning of that term. Um, but that is what the terrorist groups are after, to get the United States and Europe out of the Middle East so that they have a free hand to, to take over. Can you give us a little bit of a sense of – this is something you tease out in your article. Um, Al-Qaeda and ISIS sort of vis-a-vis each other, their strength relative to each other, their sort of respective abilities at the moment, and, and, and their relationship to each other. How does having two groups like this sort of jockeying affect the dynamic when it comes to terrorism? ISIS began its, uh, its life as Al-Qaeda in Iraq. It was a offshoot of Al-Qaeda and had pledged its allegiance to Al-Qaeda. But then it, quite frankly, just became too big for its own good in in Syria, for al-Qaeda's own good. And al-Qaeda demanded uh, continued uh, obedience to um, to the leaders in Pakistan. And the leaders of ISIS simply said, no, we're going to go our own way. And so they split and they've become sort of bitter enemies since, uh, even fighting each other in, in Syria, for instance. Uh, they have two different visions of how to um, how to prosecute jihad. Al Qaeda was always <clears throat> conduct the terrorist attacks now, hit the far enemy, the West, hit the near enemy, the the corrupt regimes of the Middle East, and then after a sufficient period of time has passed, maybe they could um, topple a government and establish a caliphate in the distant future. Uh, ISIS said, "No, it's time to establish the caliphate now. We're going to." Claim our our piece of turf in the United in in the Middle East, uh, in Syria and Iraq, and we're going to grow from there. And we're going to attract uh, adherents from around the world as a result of the fact that we own we own an Islamic state. Um, it worked for a couple of years, but now of course ISIS is on the on the retreat, and it's having difficulty um, replenishing its ranks. It's taken a lot of losses, and so it remains. To be seen whether it can continue that model, I think more likely it's going to re-adopt al-Qaeda's model of becoming a guerrilla and terrorist group and waiting for the distant future when it can re-establish a caliphate, meanwhile conducting terrorist attacks and insurgencies around the world. So the final question that I'll put to you then, and I'll warn you in advance that it's it's an unfairly overbroad one, but in <laughs> in January – the next president calls you up and, and says, Peter, I, I need your guidance as to what I can do to maximize the chance that I can keep Americans safe from terrorist attacks. Give me the thumbnail sketch of what you're telling the president. 
there was one period in the last 15 years when we were on the offensive and Al-Qaeda was on the run. And that was the period between 2007 and 2010, when we had constant and unremitting pressure against Al-Qaeda and its affiliates wherever they existed. We had Special Operations Command in the game. We had, obviously, a large troop presence in Iraq. Uh, Afghanistan wasn't going so well, but it was an economy of force effort. But this constant and unremitting pressure against the terrorist groups wherever they exist is what is necessary to degrade them, in some cases defeat them and destroy them, and also to, to reduce their appeal to others uh, like-minded uh, people in the Islamic world, which are a very small percentage who, who like these groups. But uh, if no one likes a loser, and if you can make these groups turn them into losers, as we did in Al-Qaeda in Iraq after the surge in Iraq in 2002, 2008. That is the goal, and that would be what I recommend to the president. All right. Our guest has been Peter Mansour. You can read his essay and those by other members of Hoover's Military History Working Group by visiting us online at hoover.org forward slash strategica. That's S-T-R-A-T-E-G-I-K-A. Peter, thanks for being with us. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Sinek. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Strategica, and I'm Victor Davis Hansen.